Hey folks, welcome to Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along. I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis, and this is the show where we build an entire campaign from scratch for you, and this season we're building for the Fallout role-playing game. I know I've said it a hundred times this season, but if you're still wanting a copy of the rulebook, head on over to your local game or bookshop, or if you don't have one close, check out the Modifius Entertainment website at M-O-D-I-P-H-I-U-S dot net. Now, normally this would be where I do a recap of what we built last week, then start building, but since last week's build was primarily intended to be filler jobs for you to run if your group needed them or if you were interested in using them, we're not going to do a recap. No need to hit on that. Instead, I want to get right into building, especially since the second half of this show is supposed to be the recap from my game. So I'd rather use the time we've got to get our group back on track and crank up the second act of our campaign. Oh, and just in case you're curious, the fact that I'm calling this the second act doesn't necessarily mean that this is a three-act campaign. We will use as many acts as it takes to tell the story properly. One other quick note here. I've said more than once that my group didn't take to the Denman arc of the first act, which doesn't give them the motivation to continue following our main campaign arc. So as we start building today, we're going to put a hook or two in to try to get them interested. If your group got involved in the main plot, you won't necessarily need these hooks the way they're written, so feel free to adjust them as necessary to work for your group. Okay, I know I said the last note was the last one, but something occurred to me last week that needs to be addressed here. We haven't leveled up in a bit, so let's do that now. You know the drill by this point, so take a moment to have the group do their deal. With all the notes out of the way, we build. We're picking up a day or two after the last thing the group did, whether it was one of the extra jobs or something from Victor. They'll either be at Diamond Pass or wherever they've set up their base of operations. The group will be approached by Bruno. He'll inform them that he's been sent by Victor to request a meeting with them as he has a job for them that he only trusts them to do. We've reached the point in the campaign where Bruno no longer escorts them to Victor's office. He just gets them into the third base saloon, then leaves them to head to the office. As is typical of their meetings with Victor, he's sitting at his desk when the group enters. He offers them seats and beverages and will suggest they take the seat, by the way, since the conversation might take a bit of time. He doesn't have a smile on his face, but they're going to have problems determining if he's angry, upset, or worried. His eyes don't give him away, and his body language is of someone with something on his mind, but it also doesn't give away his emotions. He does take longer than usual to speak, and that's even if the group is prompting him to do so. When he finally speaks, the group becomes immediately aware of his mood. There was an attack on one of my storehouses early this morning. Several thousand caps worth of merchandise was taken and the entire security team I had on site were killed. He pauses for a moment, then he corrects himself. To be honest, they were not just killed. It was what civilized people such as us would call a massacre. From what Bruno could make out, my people never even had the chance to pull their weapons and they were cut down where they stood. Dozens of rounds per person. As he speaks, his rage and sadness continue to build, and I'd play it like someone who has the two emotions competing with each other. Which one wins is totally up to you. 
That team was the best team I have on my payroll, and they were there for a very specific reason. I was building a stock of weapons and ammunition for my retribution against Garson Tactical for the disrespect they have shown me. Not just in your incident, but in several since then. I have learned that they have no intentions of honoring the agreement we made, so I intend to make them either do so by force or make them pay for the disrespect. This is where he focuses on the group. This is where you come in. Bruno had an opportunity to canvas the building before he sealed it off. I have another team keeping watch on it from the outside, but they have been giving orders not to enter it under any circumstances and to alert Bruno if anyone attempts to enter. I need you to go to the site, begin an investigation, and follow your leads wherever they take you. He'll lean in closer to the group to make his next point. At this point, we have done enough business together that I believe we can trust each other. That means that as of this moment, other than Bruno, you are the only people I work with whom I can trust. Perhaps this was an inside job. Perhaps someone within my organization sold me out. Perhaps this was just a random attack that got lucky. And perhaps I do not believe in coincidence. He reaches under his desk, producing a child's lunchbox-sized tin. He sits it on the desk, then slides it across to the group. I am giving you 1,000 caps up front to do this job. Upon completion, I will pay another 500 caps per person for a job well done. By the look on his face, this is not open to negotiation. This would be a really good point to make very, very clear to your group, as I'm betting you've got someone in your group that wants to negotiate everything. Yes, Victor has made it clear the group is the only group he trusts, but that trust doesn't mean they can hold him hostage for caps. He's made a more than reasonable offer to them, and it's also obvious that if they turn him down, it would not be good for them. However, if the group seems hesitant to take the gig, he will offer to clear any debt the group owes him, which means that any of the extra jobs he's told the group they'll have to do for him will be wiped clean, provided they take this job for the stated amount. If that's not enough to convince him, I don't know what it is, and we may have to consider what's going on, what's going to take him to get hooked into the main storyline. But that second hook will be coming, so you might just be running some random jobs until then. I would also note that if they refuse Victor, he will no longer be a source of information or jobs, so we will have to address that. The address he gives is just west of Forest Park. In fact, it's on the old Washington University campus, and you can Google that if you want to know more about it. Much like its St. Louis University counterpart, it got beat up badly during the bombings. And while there are still a few buildings standing, there's not a college there anymore. Victor apparently owns one of the buildings, and that's where he's sending the group. The easiest way to handle getting there is to head west down Market Street, connect with Forest Park Parkway, and stay on that until it ends at the park itself. Since the group doesn't actually want to enter the park, their best bet is to turn to the north, then back to the west, and follow the street until they wind up on the old campus. Per Google Maps, it's a two-hour and six-minute walk, and you just know we've got to make that a bit longer with an encounter or two. The first encounter takes place just east of Barnes Jewish Hospital, and it's going to be a run-in with Garson Tactical. Needless to say, Victor was right. These guys are still gunning for the group, and there will be a number of men equal to the group, and we're still using the Brotherhood of Steel night stats from page 383. Now, the group could choose to cut north by a block and avoid the hospital altogether, and if they do that, this encounter will not take place. However, the second encounter is unavoidable. Literally. You're going to want to pull the character sheet for Marvin's Carvins out of your campaign binder, or grab it off the website if you tossed it after we ran that encounter many episodes back. 
They're going to run into a big pack of these dudes as they skirt the park just shy of the university campus. In fact, when they come across them, they've got a Garson tactical officer in the middle of the street that are in the process of cutting him up. I won't get graphic here since I try to keep the podcast family friendly, but you are more than welcome to get as descriptive and grisly as you'd like. Needless to say, when they notice the group, it's on. And since they're much lower level than the group, double the number of group members isn't an obscene number of guys for them to fight. Of course, if it looks like the group's in a bad spot, you could always have a couple of Garson troops show up and start taking out the Carvins. Might make for an uncomfortable discussion when things are done, but I think at this point, you know how best to run that for your group, so I will leave it to you. In the real world, the campus of Washington University is, in a word, beautiful. Lots of trees and greenery, and the older part of the campus is laid out in that classic university style. The buildings have that old-style look to them, and you just know when you're on the campus that you're on a college campus. Needless to say, that's not how it looks in this game. Sure, there are four buildings still standing, but two of them look like they've seen better days. Of the other two, one appears to be some sort of maintenance warehouse, and that's the one Victor is sending them to. As they approach, a couple of Mr. Gutsies will approach them, asking them to identify themselves. If the robots are asked to identify themselves, they will note they are there on the behest of Mr. Victor, and they are under orders to not allow anyone into the building. Once the group identifies themselves, however, they will be allowed to pass, as they note that Mr. Bruno sent us orders to allow you in. They will, however, note that they will continue to monitor the building as per their orders. Sending them away will not be an option. The group notes there's a double garage door facing the walkaway, and it appears that was how those responsible for the break-in got in. Okay, it's not that it appears that way. It's obvious. A quarter of the door is missing, and the Mr. Gutsies seem to be really focused on it. Now, the group will probably go in this way, but if they decide they'd rather not, there's a regular door about 30 feet down the wall from the garage, and they can fairly easily unlock it to get inside. That should set off some alarm bells in their heads, since one would think that something Victor was serious about protecting would have more than just a simple lock on the door. But let's file that bit of information away for later on. Entering the warehouse, they're immediately drawn to the smell of death. There's a half a dozen bodies in here, and whomever killed them took the time to strip anything of value off of them. So other than their clothes, they've got nothing else. No armor, no weapons, no caps. And Victor wasn't kidding about how they died. Refer back to however you laid out the scenario for how the bodies look, and don't be afraid to get into details if that's your style. It should be noted, though, that regardless of what was done, it was done cleanly. The amount of blood around the room is basically limited to pools around the bodies and a bit of spray on a few of the boxes stacked in here. That will immediately tell the group, no roles required, that they're dealing with professionals. Well, to some point. The overkill tells them something else, so the combination of the two might have them scratching their heads. Of course, you already figured it out, and your group probably will as well. The professionals did their thing first, and then the sadist did his thing. Definitely a group, since two people taking out six like this isn't likely, though it's not impossible. Next up, they can see where there are blank spots amongst the various boxes and crates. From the check, there appears to be about a dozen missing. And if they asked Bruno about this before they headed out, they already knew that, though Bruno wouldn't tell them what was in the boxes. 
If they think to check some of the other boxes, they'll find things like ration packs, stim packs, and other items that would fetch a pretty high price on the open market. Again, it will occur to the group pretty easily that if the attackers left this stuff, whatever they took had to be pretty darn valuable. As they continue their search, because you and I both know they're going to want to look around to see if our hit persons left something behind, they will find a few things. Again, no need to roll here because the stuff they find is obvious. Too obvious if you get to thinking about it. Here's what they find and spread it out around the room. They find a Garson tactical maker's plate on the floor by the garage door. The group's seen these before at other scenes. They find several spent 10 millimeter casings. That in and of itself isn't weird, but the fact that four or five casings is all they find will get them wondering, especially since they count way more bullet holes than that. It's also odd because they find them somewhat neatly organized together in a corner of the room. Now, this one will require a roll unless they specifically say they're doing a thorough check of the bodies. The roll would be endurance plus survival, difficulty one, and that's just for it to occur to one of them to actually check the bodies. In the clenched hand of one of the bodies, they find a scrap of black uniform that appears to be the same style as those worn by Garson Tactical. What makes it weird, though, is that when they look at it, it appears to have been cut from a shirt rather than torn from one. The damage to the garage door is also odd. Sure, the lower quarter of the door was removed and appears to have been cut away with something, most likely a cutting torch. However, the group would note that in order for the attackers to get out that way, they'd need to bend over or crawl out, and that's not a logical thing to do when you've just shot a group of people and stolen a bunch of stuff. That being said, it would work for sliding the boxes and crates out and then leave through the door. You know, the door they might have used to come inside. So they'll want to check that. And from the inside, they realize there's a half a dozen or so different security guards in place to prevent the door from being opened. And they've all been disengaged. Of course, if the group came in that way, they've probably already figured that out. The question is, who did it? Well, that's what they find. And unfortunately, they've got more questions than answers. I'm pretty sure your group is going to settle on this being some sort of setup since the Garson stuff was way too obvious. That will then lead them to wondering who would want to do that. I mean, other than Victor, since he probably wouldn't kill his own people to do that, right? The various group members can rack their brains trying to figure out who might want Garson Tactical set up, as well as why they'd want to do it. First off, by this point, it should be pretty obvious to the group that Victor's a bigger player in the game than he originally presented himself. That alone provides the inspiration someone would need for setting him up, since the possibilities of getting him out of the way would leave some territory open and ripe for the picking. Second, the group itself has done a pretty decent job of annoying the heck out of a lot of different groups, and there are a few who are aware of the connection between Victor and the group, so there might be someone out there who decided to kill two birds with a single stone. Now, they can work through the list of people they've crossed, and we covered that list last week, so just go back to the episode if you've forgotten or if you didn't write it down. Last, they're going to feel like they're stuck, since other than the Garson tactical stuff, there's not any obvious evidence pointing to anybody else. However, let's do an intelligence plus luck check difficulty three. I'm going to use those because there's not really anything that fits exactly what I want them to do. It'll occur to whomever does the check and succeeds that while Garson tactical carries 10 millimeter pistols, from their own experiences, they prefer to use bigger guns. And when they go back and check all the bodies, all of the bullet holes match up with 10 millimeter. 
Doesn't mean Garson wasn't involved, but it goes way off their usual MO. Just about the time the group starts wrapping up their investigation, they hear a commotion outside. And regardless of how they get outside, they see a single figure clad in all navy blue and wearing a navy blue trench coat, taking out the Mr. Gutsy robots without much effort. They can't see the person's eyes since the black sunglasses they're wearing make it impossible. And it's not like the Gutsies aren't getting their shots in. It just seems like the shots have no effect. Before we dive into this, your group might realize that it's a synth courser, especially if they've played the video game, and they would be right. Stats are on page 374, and there's only the one, regardless of the number in your group. Trust me, if you check out those stats, one should be a huge challenge for the group. By the time the group can get involved, there's a single Mr. Gutsy left, but it blows up before it can attack again. Run the combat, but there's a twist to it. Once it's lost five health points, the Courser uses its ability to teleport away, leaving the group even more confused than it was previously. And if we're being honest, leaving them with a possible suspect in what just went down. Considering everything that's happened, including the fact that the warehouse is now unguarded, the group should think to head back to Victor to bring him up to speed. It's another two-hour walk, and there will be another encounter with Garson Tactical, though this one will take place a couple of blocks from the pass. The group will actually run into Victor as they enter the pass. He and another Mr. Gutsy robot are heading back from another trip, and Victor suggests they head back to his office to discuss what they've managed to find out about the situation. Right off the top, when they tell him about the courser, he'll be shocked, since he's very well aware of their purpose, though he's not sure who's using them these days. He'll also order Bruno to send another squad of Mr. Gutsies to the campus to guard the stash. The group can relay what they found on the site, and Victor will note that it matches up with Bruno's observations, though he'll add that the human touch they bring, which is the ability to think outside of the box, is why he wanted them there. He agrees with them that Garson is probably being set up, and with the appearance of the Corsair, it's obvious it's someone way more powerful than either of them has dealt with to this point. He reports he'd been out meeting with some associates to see what he could weasel out of them, and while he got a lot of information he believes to be useless, there was one tidbit that seems to fit with what they now know. A fellow calling himself Longsworth has been meeting with others in Victor's line of work, spreading his caps around freely and letting it be known that, for the right price, he can help solve all their various problems. The twisted tap is where he tends to hold court, and he's there most nights. Now, normally Victor would task the group with heading over there themselves to deal with the situation, but he believes that this requires a slightly different approach. He intends to head to the tap himself tonight to see what this Longsworth fellow is about, but that doesn't mean he wants to leave his group behind. Now, how this is going to work depends on the number of people in the group and their makeup. Up to four humans will be asked to dress as nicely as possible, think like John Wick, and Victor will provide them with enough caps to purchase the clothing if they need it. Everyone else, especially non-humans, will be sent out ahead of Victor and his guard to find positions around the tap to keep an eye on things. Again, Victor will provide everyone with the tactical gear needed to keep in communication and be able to see what's going on. Think the earpieces security uses today, plus some night vision goggles. Now, he's not giving them to the group. He's letting them use them for this particular mission. And if your group has no humans in it, he'll take Bruno to head inside with him, and Bruno will handle communication with the group. 
There will be no issues getting to the tap, and we'll wrap the build with Victor and his escort heading inside, and the rest of the group taking up their positions on the outside. You can decide how that is going to look, especially as the group members ask what the possibilities are. Next week, we'll pick up here and really set the hook for what's to come. But we've reached the point where we need to cover what happened in my game last week. To refresh your memory, during our last session, the group managed to get a hold of a Jessup Chemicals employee and download all of the files concerning the various projects they'd been going on. They realized they could probably make a deal with Victor for the info, and he paid him well for it. Afterwards, they realized they could also probably make more money if they piecemealed the info out to other buyers, but Barnabas O'Reilly was the only one they sold anything to because they realized pretty quick that selling too much would probably bother Victor. They set up a new base of operations, and just about the time they were done, Victor summoned them because of the kidnapping of Corinth and Igmond. The group successfully infiltrated Barnes Hospital, freed Corinth and Igmond, and got them back to Diamond Pass for treatment. That's where we ended last session, and where we picked up this session. We picked up right after the group got Corinth and Igmond back to Victor's to get medical attention. The group really didn't have anything pressing to deal with, so they hit up the job board in Diamond Pass, and they found the four jobs we wrote up previously. For those who don't remember, there's the delivery job, they were to pick it up at the dome, the extermination job at the church, the Nuka-Cola collection and delivery job, and the job at the Lime Ferry. As expected, the group took all four jobs off the board and decided they'd do the delivery job first. They went to the dome, met with Kelvin, got their hands on the booze they needed to deliver. On the way, they had both of their encounters, but nary a shot was fired. And there was a reason for that. I forgot to take the group's character sheets with me to game night, so they didn't have their stuff. So these wound up being conversations, and while there was some die rolling going on, I was fudging it, and it was always going to be to their advantage, because I didn't forgot my dice, too. Go figure. We actually wrapped the game right after the last encounter, so we didn't get a whole lot of gaming in. And I do owe you an apology for that, because this show, obviously, is going to be way short because of it. I mean, I did make a rookie mistake in forgetting character sheets. That's on me. However, the fact that we didn't necessarily get any gaming done isn't completely my fault, or anyone's for that matter. See, my daughter and my wife had been busting their tails for the last couple of months, along with my family and friends, to plan a surprise 50th birthday party for me, and we had that this past Saturday before game night. The majority of the game group was there, so needless to say, by the time we got to playing the game... While we were up for it, we had some serious problems focusing. Anyway, I wanted to offer the apology for a short recap and explain why. I can assure you that in two weeks, we will have a full recap. Anyway, that's where we're ending the recap for this week. All right, so it's becoming apparent at this point that my group's gone way off the beaten path. And while I'm trying to get the major points of the storyline into the game, what we're writing here isn't matching up with how they're playing it. And many of you have not only noticed it, but are wondering just how exactly we got there. So rather than take up an entire build episode going over that, I've worked up a special episode of the show that will be dropping tomorrow, which is Saturday for those who get this show when it drops first on Friday. Now, as I'm recording this, I have absolutely no idea how long that special is going to be, but we're going to take a look at how exactly my group got to this point, and I'll share a few of my ideas for getting them back on track. I know I got into that a bit in last week's show, but since I've had more time and another game session to think on it, I've come up with a couple of more ideas that I think might 
work. So if you found yourself in the same boat that I'm in with my group, you'll want to catch tomorrow's special edition of the Build Along. Same bat time, same bat channel, different bat day. And if you don't get that reference, you really need to Google it. It also means I'm every bit now 50. While you're waiting for next week's show, might I suggest role-playing history? If you've never listened before, it's the show where we pick a game, creator, or newsworthy situation from the tabletop role-playing game world and dig into great detail on it. And we don't just cover the mainstream games. Believe me, I've researched games that have been out of print for decades. Role-playing history is available wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, badgeeandproductions.net. All Fallout role-playing game materials referenced on this show are the trademarked and copyrighted properties of Modifius Entertainment through their license with Bethesda Games and are used on this show for entertainment purposes only. If you're interested in this or any of the other fine products produced by Modifius, check out their website, M-O-D-I-P-H-I-U-S dot net. The music we use for this show comes from Pixabay.com. Check them out for all your royalty-free, license-free music needs. Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along is a production of Bad GM Productions. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash gaming forward slash Bad GM Prod. On Twitter at Bad GMP. YouTube and Tumblr, it's Bad GM Productions. You can email us, badgmproductions at gmail.com. And online, the website is badgmproductions.net. Next week, we start to fill in the picture concerning the attack on Victor's storehouse, and we'll start getting a better idea of just who our big, bad, evil guys will be. That's next week, though. Until then, I'm the bad GM Wayne Davis, and I'll see you at the game table.